Hello, campus cronies. Welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, full-time college administrator, part-time college professor, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from 1 to 5 on my serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to 5 being very serious. As you guys may know, this episode is rated a 5, and this is part 2 of Chronicle 43 titled Who Killed Suzanne Joven? If you haven't listened to part one from last week, then I urge you to go back and listen to it first before this episode, because I'm basically going to pick up from where I left off. As a quick recap, though, we discussed the murder of Suzanne, a 21-year-old student at Yale University. We learned that someone left her for dead on the side of the street in an upscale neighborhood in New Haven, Connecticut, after stabbing her 17 times in the neck and chest areas. After her murder, police collected some evidence from the scene, including an empty glass soda bottle, Fresca to be specific, which had Suzanne's fingerprint and an unknown partial palm print. The medical examiner also found that the tip of the knife used to kill Suzanne was still lodged in her skull. In part one of this episode, I primarily discussed how police zeroed in on only one suspect— Suzanne's thesis advisor and a lecturer at Yale, Dr. James Vandeveld. Police came up with a theory that Suzanne and Vandeveld were having an affair and because she was upset with him about his lack of support for her senior thesis, the affair went terribly wrong and Vandeveld murdered Suzanne. Again, that was the theory they came up with. And we spent a lot of time discussing how police basically had tunnel vision when it came to Vandeveld and they were adamant that he killed her, even publicly announcing that he was a suspect. But they lacked any evidence whatsoever linking him to the crime or establishing a real motive. Ultimately, Vandeveld was cleared, and he sued the city of New Haven and Yale University for falsely accusing him of Suzanne's murder. So in part two of this episode, I want to discuss other potential theories of what could have happened to Suzanne. But please keep in mind, her case has yet to be solved over 24 years later, so the information I'm going to share with you today is speculative, and nothing has officially been proven or solved. I will say, though, the evidence pointing at one particular person is overwhelming to say the least. So with that in mind, let's get started. start with a tip that came in a day or two after the murder. A woman who was driving through the neighborhood where Suzanne was killed called police to report seeing a suspicious man in the area. The woman was driving on Whitney Avenue shortly before 10 p.m. on December 4th, which is about a block or two away from the murder scene. 
The woman told police that she was driving slowly at the time when a white man with blondish hair between the ages of 20 and 30 years old and wearing a loose-fitting green jacket suddenly ran up to her front passenger window. He briefly peered inside and then turned around, jumped over some plantings of a new garden in front of a church, and then sprinted off. The woman, who has never been publicly identified, said, quote, I never saw anybody run so fast, end quote. The woman went on to describe a fierce look on his face, but she also said she didn't get a real good look at him because it all happened so quickly. She noted that she only saw the side of his face for a couple of seconds, but that she could tell he had a square-shaped jaw. Here's the thing, though. Police were so focused on Vandeveld as the suspect that they tried to convince the woman that who she saw was Vandeveld, even though when they showed her pictures of him, she was adamant that that was not the man who ran up to her car window. I mean, Vandeveld was... 38 years old at the time, and the man she saw looked to be only in his 20s and definitely not older than 30. She was basically like, trust me, I did not see a 38-year-old man out sprinting that night. End of story. Plus, Vandeville didn't have the square jaw that she was sure she saw, even if it was just for a couple of seconds. After seven months into the case and no leads or answers, people in the community began referring to it as the John Benet Ramsey case of New Haven. Then months turned into years, and two years later in the year 2000, according to Investigation Discovery, investigators revealed that witnesses saw a tan or brown van in the area around the time of the murder. They also noted that they had recovered a male's DNA from beneath Suzanne's fingernails. This basically led them nowhere, though, and by 2006, when her case had still not been solved, the Yale Alumni Magazine reported that a team of four retired Connecticut State Police detectives took over the case. In 2007, they assembled the Joven Task Force and began working for only a dollar a year salaries as they reviewed all the evidence from previous investigations. A couple years later, in 2008, so 10 years after Suzanne's murder, the team finally issued appeals for information from the public regarding two leads that had never been released before. Remember that woman driving on Whitney Avenue who tried to tell police what she saw? That, you know, a young man ran up to her window? Well, they had never released that information to the public before. In 10 whole years, they had never once really followed up on that lead or asked the public for help. Seriously, I'm shaking my head in disbelief so hard right now. <sighs> anyway, in 2008, investigators released a police sketch of the man the woman described, which, in my opinion, looks nothing like Vandeveld, by the way, and they asked the public for help in identifying him. But y'all, here's the thing. How could they really expect the public to remember what a person looked like from 10 years ago? I simply do not understand why they didn't release that sketch from the jump. Oh wait, yes I do. Because they had tunnel vision and were so sure Vandeveld was their guy. Ugh. So moving on. Anyway, so in 2008, the investigation team also asked the public for help in identifying someone else that Suzanne had contact with the night of her murder or I guess I should say potentially had contact with. Remember that email she wrote to her friend regarding the GRE study materials? You might recall me saying that in that email, she told her friend she had lent the materials to another 
unnamed person, but that she would retrieve them from that unnamed person and leave them in her apartment lobby. So police decided to ask the public in 2008 for any information about who that unnamed person might have been. So my question is, could the young running man in the green jacket that the woman saw be the same as the unnamed person in Suzanne's email? So keep that question in the back of your mind because I'll definitely circle back around to that possibility. But first, let's discuss some other leads in the case. So from the very beginning, police and detectives knew that sexual assault was most likely not the motive of whoever attacked and killed Suzanne. There was no evidence leading them to that possibility, especially because Suzanne was fully clothed in the same clothes she had been wearing all day December 4th, and there was no evidence suggesting she put up a struggle against her attacker. So, they thought, robbery might be the motive. This means that there is a possibility that Suzanne was abducted and did not know her killer. So, let's talk about that possibility. According to a documentary titled The Green Jacket Killer by Jeff Mitchell, Suzanne could have been abducted as she was walking that night. Remember, police found a Fresca bottle with Suzanne's fingerprints on it, which led them to believe it was her soda, meaning she was drinking it or had been drinking it when she was attacked and killed. According to the documentary, many friends of Suzanne's verified that Fresca was one of her go-to favorite drinks, so it wasn't unusual for her to have a Fresca. Well, according to the documentary, the only place to buy a Fresca in the area where she was walking that night, you know, near the Yale's campus, was Krauser's Market. They determined that she could have been walking to that market when she continued through Yale's main gate after turning in her car keys or those car keys instead of turning around and going back home. Also, Peter Stein, Suzanne's friend she stopped and talked to on campus on her way to the police substation, said Suzanne did not have a fresco with her when he saw her that night, and she wasn't carrying any bags or a purse or anything like that where she could have pulled one out of later. So if this was the case, if Suzanne was walking to that local market to buy a fresca, then it could be likely that she was abducted in a robbery gone wrong. You see, if you continue walking north on Elm Street from where Krauser's Market was located at the time until Elm Street crosses Park Street, the area eventually becomes dark and secluded, very much unlike other well-lit areas closer to campus. Like, basically the only thing in that particular area at the time in December of 1998 was some boarded-up remains of a restaurant. So if she was abducted, it was most likely in this area. Apparently, random violence against Yale students was sometimes a thing back then. And if robbery was the motive, it was a situation where the person or persons snatched her up, shoved her inside their tan or brown van, and then attempted to rob her. If you remember, I earlier said that investigators revealed that witnesses had seen a tan or brown van in the area, and... I guess police actually impounded a 1982 Dodge Ram van after the murder, although I want to be clear that they never said for sure if that van that they impounded was the same van that witnesses saw in the area. Like, that was never proven or released to the public or anything like that. So, thinking about that theory, which could be a possibility, Suzanne only had a crumpled up dollar bill in her pocket. Her wallet was later discovered still in her apartment back on campus. So, 
imagine for a second how those abductors or robbers would have reacted if they went through all that work just for a lousy dollar bill. I'd imagine they'd be pretty mad and maybe even ready to kill. So it was speculated that perhaps the person or persons became angry and stabbed Suzanne in a rage and then dumped her out in that New Haven neighborhood. This theory is even more plausible because East Rock Road, which is where Suzanne was later found, eventually leads to East Rock Park, which is a common place to buy drugs or was back then. So if you put two and two together, Suzanne's killer may have been in that area looking for an opportunity to rob someone on their way to buy drugs. Another potential theory that investigators tossed around was that Suzanne's murder was linked to terrorism. In part one, I discussed how Yale administration hired Andy Rosenzweig and Patrick Harnett, two experienced New York City investigators, to look into Suzanne's case. Well, Rosenzweig suggested to New Haven police that a terrorist might have killed Suzanne because her senior thesis, you know, that paper she was incredibly stressed over, was on Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. Rosenzweig told the New Haven Register, quote, I'd be looking for someone from or sympathetic with the fringe element of the Muslim Middle Eastern community in and around Yale and New Haven. A bartender, a waiter, a cab driver, a student, a store clerk who may have crossed paths with Suzanne and who she decided to confide that she was doing research on Al-Qaeda. Maybe that person then decided to take it upon themselves to befriend her and ultimately kill her in his or her demented mind doing their part in the jihad. End quote. However, when Rosenzweig suggested this theory to other investigators, he said, quote, I got universal disinterest, end quote. Now, I'm not going to lie. I was pretty much sold on the robbery gone wrong theory. But we can't discount the running man in the green jacket. You know, the guy the woman encountered around the time of the murder as she was driving through the neighborhood. And y'all, when I went through all the evidence in this theory, I'm 99% sure that this one is much more likely. So let me fill you in. But I do want to say that the information gets a little twisty, turny, and murky. So bear with me as I go through it. Anyway, in 1998, at the time of Suzanne's murder, a young man was attending graduate school for architecture at Yale University. This particular man's name has never been revealed to the public, so we will call him Billy, which is actually the name he is referred to in the Green Jacket Killer documentary. And according to that documentary, before attending grad school at Yale, Billy had earned his bachelor's degree at Princeton. And while attending Princeton, Billy became friends with a group of guys, and basically this group of guys stayed in touch after college, so it was like a Princeton alumni group that remained in contact with one another. So in late October of 2011, Gills Carter, who was one of those Princeton alums in that group, had just entered the gates of his apartment complex in New Haven when Billy suddenly approached him. Carter recalled, quote, he showed up at my door extremely disturbed, distressed. I said, let's go for a walk. And we walked into Edgerton Park. We walked into the park and he said, there's something you should know. He said, yes, I'm obsessed with the murder of Suzanne Joven. End quote. Billy went on to tell Carter that shortly after Suzanne's murder back in 1998, he had been sleeping in his room. 
When he emerged from his room, his roommate at the time was watching a news broadcast about Suzanne's unsolved murder, and Billy told his roommate something along the lines of, they'll never catch me. When Billy was telling Carter this, though, which was completely new information to Carter, Billy said he initially meant it as a joke. However, he continued confiding in Carter and told him that he had spent the last several years of his life living in fear that police were constantly surveilling him, trying to trap him into a crime that he did not commit. On the verge of crying, Billy told Carter that he was extremely unhappy and that his obsession with Suzanne's murder prevented him from having relationships with women. Not long after this conversation, Billy began making a will, and in the will, he wanted to leave his condo to his niece. He even had his will written out and signed and witnessed by his neighbors. At the time, Billy was only 38 years old. The reason he gave for this? Well, he told his friends, quote, they are out to get me. They're closing in, end quote. Shortly after this, Billy jumped into oncoming traffic on Interstate 95 in New Haven and died from his injuries. The official cause of death was listed as an accident. So yeah, I know that is some heavy stuff and it all sounds terrible. So let's discuss a little more background about Billy. In December of 1998, Billy was 25 years old. He had become estranged from his family shortly before attending grad school at Yale, and he had been prescribed psychotropic medication because of that. Now, on more than one occasion, Billy had been accused by more than one woman of stalking and displaying threatening behavior to the point that at least one of those women filed a police report against him. It was also documented that he had been prone to sudden and frightening emotional outbursts. Also, in December of 1998, Billy would have been 25 years old. He had blonde hair and, quite frankly, matched the description of the man who ran up to the woman's car near the crime scene. Billy also owned a green, loose-fitting jacket, and he definitely could be described as having a square jaw. And remember how the woman witnessed the young man in the green jacket running away? And how she said that she had never seen someone running so fast? Well, Billy was a track star in high school, and even by 25 years old, Billy continued to run and jog for exercise. And y'all, on the Green Jacket Killer documentary, they show several pictures of Billy wearing a green windbreaker type of jacket. And I cannot describe to you how uncanny the resemblance is between Billy in those pictures and the sketch police later released in 2008 of the man in the green jacket from the night of Suzanne's murder. It's seriously jaw-dropping because it feels like you're looking at the person from the sketch. So let's recap. The woman described the man in the green jacket as between the ages of 20 and 30 years old, having blonde hair and a square jaw. Check, check, check. Billy had both blonde hair and a very defined square jaw, and he was 25 years old at the time. She said he appeared to have an athletic build and ran incredibly fast check. Billy was a runner. And finally, she said he was wearing a green jacket. Check on that as well. So with all that circumstantial stuff in mind that I just shared with you, let's talk about how Suzanne and Billy might have known each other. You see, Billy spoke German. I have no idea how fluently he spoke the language, but regardless, it is documented that he spoke German. And if you remember, I told you in part one that Suzanne co-founded the German club at Yale. 
According to the Green Jacket Killer documentary, the German club's purpose is to, quote, bring together all German-speaking undergraduate, graduate, and professional students, as well as postdocs, staff, and friends, end quote. And remember that last email Suzanne wrote to her friend about the GRE materials? She said she needed to retrieve the GRE materials from someone, though she did not clarify who that someone was in her email. And again, remember, police could never identify who that someone was. So, could Billy have been that someone? I mean, he was in his first semester as a grad student studying architecture at Yale, and that likely means he had to take the GRE to get accepted into that program. So, the theory is that Billy and Suzanne knew each other from the German club. They could have also seen each other on campus relatively often because Billy's architecture classes were housed in a building that was located one street over from Suzanne's apartment. Perhaps Suzanne had planned to meet up with Billy to retrieve the GRE study materials and or he saw her walking and offered her a ride. He had a known history of sudden outbursts, so if he had made a move on Suzanne and she rejected him, it's not out of the question for him to have become violent and snapped. He also had access to architecture tools, including X-Acto knives. Now, again, if you recall, the knife used to kill Suzanne was delicate enough for the tip to break off into her skull, but of the 17 stab wounds to her body, there was only one fatal blow that ultimately killed her. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with X-Acto knives, but y'all, they aren't very big. They are, however, quite sharp and somewhat delicate. So it would make sense for many of her stab wounds to basically be superficial, and it would make sense for the tip of this tool to break off. I mean, they are meant to be used for architecture projects, not murder. Anyway, it is quite possible that the knife used to attack and kill Suzanne was an exacto tool, one that Billy could have easily accessed. The only thing that doesn't necessarily add up in this theory is that Billy drove a blue Toyota Camry at the time, and not one witness could recall ever seeing that type of car in the neighborhood where Suzanne was found. They said they saw a tan or brown van. Well, there could be an explanation for this discrepancy too. You see, there may have been at least two witnesses to the murder itself. According to Jeff Mitchell, the man who wrote and produced the Green Jacket Killer documentary, a doctor contacted him in September of 2016 about a patient he had been treating for having a history of seizures. Now, before I get too far into this next bit of information, I do want to be transparent and let you know that Jeff Mitchell is a childhood friend of Dr. James Vandeveld, the man initially accused of Suzanne's murder. And Mitchell has dedicated years to studying Suzanne's case, but I do want to say that it's not necessarily to prove his friend's innocence, but more so because he has truly wanted to know the truth of what happened to Suzanne, whether that information pointed to his friend's guilt or innocence. And, well, the police's investigation hasn't yielded many results besides pointing a finger at a person they had no evidence against in the first place, which ultimately got them sued. So Mitchell has taken it upon himself to dive deep into the case. He's interviewed just as many witnesses and points of contact as the police have. Bottom line, he's done his research, y'all, and he knows what's up. So with that being said, this doctor reached out to him, and this doctor he calls Dr. X in the documentary. 
And so anyway, this doctor reached out to him because the doctor had no luck when he tried contacting the cold case unit to provide them with the information. They just never returned his calls. But Dr. X shared with Mitchell that his patient would experience blackouts every year in December. The patient shared with the doctor that his blackouts first started happening after he witnessed a traumatizing murder while living and working in New Haven in 1998. So according to that doctor, Dr. X, the patient's story is that he was walking back from work on the night of December 4th, 1998, and he decided to walk a different route than usual. Ironically, he thought walking through that upscale New Haven neighborhood, the same neighborhood where Suzanne was murdered, would be safer. So as he was walking, he came across three individuals on a street corner. He said two of the people, a man and a woman, were arguing while the third person sat on a brick wall or like a brick fence. He said the woman had an accent that to him kind of sounded Spanish, and she appeared to be either drunk or high, so under the influence of something. The patient said that the man she was arguing with was wearing a dark-colored windbreaker, and the guy sitting on the wall had bright red hair and was wearing a high school letter jacket. As the patient was walking by these three individuals, the woman grabbed the patient's wrist and asked him for a sip of his drink, which the doctor said was either a Sprite or a Fresca. Side note, in 1998, both Sprite and Fresca were sold in similar green bottles. Anyway, the guy gave the woman his drink, but as she was taking it from him, the woman scratched the guy's arm. She then took a sip and offered it back to him, but he told her, you know, that's okay, that she could just keep it. Then the woman tossed it over her head like a basketball. The bottle bounced off the ground and into the bushes, at which point she says, two points Jordan. After this, the guy the woman was arguing with became angry and accused the patient of trying to take his girl. But the patient just said something along the lines of, I don't want your girl, I'm gay. The next thing the patient knew, the guy then pulled out some sort of knife, but the patient at this point kept walking. The patient said he got about 100 feet away when he heard a scream and he witnessed the woman getting repeatedly stabbed. What's more, the patient also said he saw a tan or brown van parked at the scene which had graduation tassels hanging from the rearview mirror. And at the time, lo and behold, I guess this witness tried to call New Haven police to tell them what he had seen, but he never received a call back. Now, This doesn't seem too far-fetched when considering that others also had a hard time contacting the New Haven police who were investigating Suzanne's murder. Remember the woman, the witness, who saw the man running in the green jacket? Well, she had tried to contact police numerous times before she finally received a call back over a week later. And that group of Princeton alumni who thought Billy might be responsible for Suzanne's death? So anyway, that group of guys, they too tried numerous times to contact the cold case unit with no luck in getting responses. Mitchell pointed out in his documentary that law enforcement basically stonewalled that group of guys who were simply trying to provide them with critical information about their friend. Now, I have no idea if what Dr. X told Jeff Mitchell was true or not, and even Mitchell himself acknowledges that possibility. I mean, it's kind of fishy because the doctor told Mitchell he could not remember the patient's name and the doctor no longer had access to the patient's file because he had switched jobs and was no longer working for or associated with the previous hospital. But here's a tidbit of information that points to the possibility of the patient's story being true. 
You see, Billy's roommate at the time of the murder had bright red hair, exactly as the patient described. And there is a photo shown in the documentary where Billy and his roommate are standing next to each other, and the roommate with red hair is wearing a high school letter jacket. So, what could have happened on December 4th, 1998, is that Billy and his roommate came across Suzanne, either by plan or by happenstance, and Suzanne got into the vehicle with them because, well, she likely knew Billy, probably from the German club or somehow from being on campus. And because Billy drove a blue Toyota Camry at the time, it is quite possible that the two roommates were in Billy's roommate's vehicle, which likely could have been that brown or tan van that was seen near the area. Then, after Billy stabbed Suzanne, the red-headed guy, the roommate, could have sped off in the van while Billy took off running in another direction, ultimately stopping for a few seconds at that woman's car window before continuing to sprint down the street. Now, while this theory seems the most plausible to me, there is no way we can be sure of exactly how and why Suzanne was murdered. At least, not until more investigation is done and loose ends are tied up. Because as I pointed out, all of that information I just shared with you is purely speculative. What I don't understand is why the New Haven Police Department refused to look into other possibilities, other potential suspects, you know, other than Vandeveld. I mean, why discount potential witnesses and not return calls and follow up on important leads? Something else that I didn't mention previously is that even Henry C. Lee, one of the world's most prominent and well-known forensic scientists who worked on the John JonBenet Ramsey and Elizabeth Smart cases, just to name a couple, he offered to help, but apparently the New Haven Police Department told him, uh, nah, we don't really need your assistance. The New Haven Register reported later that I guess they did call Lee back up and asked for his help in examining, I think, Suzanne's clothing and the Fresca bottle, but I really couldn't find anything following up on that or or saying if there was any results yielded there. Um, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's just there's so little information um, besides speculation right now because po- the police are being so tight-lipped and keeping information so close and not really discussing any other possibilities. So again, I say, why? Jeff Mitchell, in his documentary, actually answers this question. He claims that he believes law enforcement would basically look silly or incompetent. I mean, at the time, they had very publicly named a suspect, Dr. Vandeveld, but they could not gather enough evidence to arrest him, which makes law enforcement look incredibly bad. So, according to Mitchell... They basically had this fake-it-till-you-make-it mentality that kind of backfired on them. So, all these years later, the question that remains is, what could still be done to solve this case? I mean, is it even solvable at this point? Rosenzweig and Harnett both believe it is, as do both Jeff Mitchell and James Vandeveld. In 2018, Rosenzweig and Harnett told the New Haven Register that they believe Suzanne's case could be solved if all the investigators who have ever worked the case came together and shared information and followed up on leads. Rosenzweig also said that he and Harnett would be willing to meet with current investigators to brainstorm, but the current investigators don't seem open to it. As of 2018, the chief state's attorney, Kevin Kane, was overseeing the Joven investigation via Connecticut's cold case unit. 
Kane in 2018 told the New Haven Register that they are still actively investigating and following leads and that the FBI is providing technical assistance, but that the New Haven PD is the primary investigating agency. Then, in 2021, New Haven State's Attorney Patrick Griffin told WTNH News 8, quote, The investigation into the homicide of Suzanne Joven is a very active case. Investigators in the New Haven State's Attorney's Office are continually reviewing records, following up on new leads, and working with the State Forensics Laboratory to solve the case. We are committed to providing justice for Suzanne's family and making sure that whoever is responsible for this heinous crime does not escape accountability. End quote. Here's the thing, though. I think investigators do have evidence that they can forensically test, but for some reason it doesn't appear that they are or have done anything like that. According to Vandeveld's op-ed in the Yale Daily News, which I know was written in 2008, so over 10 years ago now and 10 years after her murder, but at the time, the state had two key pieces of evidence. Remember, they had collected DNA from underneath Suzanne's fingernails as well as a palm print on the soda bottle. But it doesn't appear that they have compared the two sets of DNA to see if they match, which is odd. Also, I don't think they ever tested or lifted touch DNA from Suzanne's clothing she was wearing that day. So it's all just so odd to me. So, I don't know, what do y'all think? Do y'all think this case can still be solved, or is it just kind of messed up beyond belief? I I really don't know. I don't know. I'm seriously at a loss. Do you guys think the New Haven police are harboring information or stalling on the case so they don't look bad? I don't know. (laughs) And I keep saying I don't know because I don't understand why it has been 24 years, over 24 years, almost 25, this year will be 25, and... They've only ever released Vandeveld's name as a suspect, and they haven't released any other information to even move in the direction of other possibilities. It's just, it's really baffling to me. So I'll stop rambling on, (laughs) but I do want to say that regardless, there is a reward for information leading to an arrest in Suzanne's case. According to the Connecticut State Division of Criminal Justice, the state has offered a $50,000 reward and Yale University has committed an additional $100,000 to that reward fund. Also, according to the Division of Criminal Justice, they are, quote, still interested in all available information or leads, no matter how remote or trivial that information may seem. We want to hear from anyone who has heard something, seen something, or who may even have repressed the knowledge of something that could be related to the murder of Miss Joven. Do not assume that someone else has already provided the information. Even if you have already made a call in response to previous requests for information, you should call again so that the team may follow every possible lead. End quote. So, witnesses or anybody who might know anything at all about the case are asked to call the tip line at 1-866-623-8058, or you can send an email to joven.case at ct.gov. Again, that's joven.case at ct.gov. Okay, y'all, well, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 43, part two of Chronicle 43. As always, be sure to check out my social media where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Podcast on Instagram and Campus Crime Chronicles on Facebook. 
So check me out on there and let me know what you think of this week's episode. You can also reach me by email at campuscrimepodcast at gmail.com and be sure to keep checking out my TikTok for some additional campus crime stories. Also, y'all, please don't forget that my new goal is 100 reviews on Apple Podcasts. I'm currently at like 91, I think, so I'm so close. So help me out, y'all, and keep those ratings coming. Help me get to 100 reviews. Okay, well, y'all, that is all for today, so bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Giari Gassaway. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online master's of social work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu.